All right. Thank you so much, Dave. What a great story. Isn't it beautiful to hear the stories of how God has been at work in each one of our lives? And uh, to that end, I want to just encourage you, if you haven't shared one already, you know, we're not even halfway through the year yet, which means we've got uh, well over 30 uh, Sundays yet to go. Um, That means plenty of you will have an opportunity to share your story uh, with us. And I just want to encourage you to be thoughtful about that, be praying about that, be prepared for that opportunity, and let me know when you're ready. All right. Well, we're going to read together this morning uh, again from Matthew 16. This is the last message in a series, uh, and we're we're drawing in uh, particularly on uh, Matthew 16. Uh, For the last few weeks, we've been in verses 13 through 18, and we're going to add to that now this morning uh, verse 19, which is the end of, of this particular interaction between Jesus and his disciples. So let me invite you to stand with me. And uh, let's read together our scripture for this morning, Matthew 16, 13 to 19. When Jesus came uh, to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is the word of the Lord from Matthew 16. You can be seated. Thank you. Well, the the message I want to share with you this morning uh, has a particular title and focus, and you'll see it here reflected behind me. And uh, it's interesting that there's a good good little touch point, I think, between this message and the story that we just heard from Dave, because his life took a turn for the worse the moment he took the keys to the car as a 16-year-old. And uh, I, want about, I want to talk about taking the keys, taking hold of the keys, but these are not the car keys or the house keys. These are the church keys, or better yet, the keys to the kingdom of God. Those are the keys that, that Jesus says he is giving, not just to Peter and to the other apostles, but to all of us who are part of the ecclesia, the, the people of God. So let me just briefly review the ground that we've covered because we've been working our way systematically through this passage of Scripture and talking about it really verse by verse over the last several weeks. And uh, uh, the theme or the, the title of this series of message, messages is Ecclesia Rising. And what I want you to think about when you hear that phrase is that the church is meant to rise up 
into a particular purpose, a particular destiny that Jesus has in mind for it. What is that? Well, that's what we've been talking about, and that's what we're going to continue to discover together this morning, particularly as we work our way down to verse 19, the grand finale of this interaction between Jesus and his apostles. So let me read for you again just the brief words of Jesus uh, in response to Peter's confession of faith, right? Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then the focal point here is on Jesus' words back to Peter. What did he say? Beginning at verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So last Sunday, we spoke about the the word, the Greek word, ekklesia, that gets translated church in this passage, particularly in verse 18. And it's the first use of this word in the New Testament. It was used, as I explained last week, in the Old Testament Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, But this is the first time that we find the word ecclesia used in the New Testament. And Jesus chose it for good reason. He had lots of things in mind when he chose to use that word. It gets translated church, but it has lots of meaning because of its political and spiritual history, which we talked about last Sunday. So if that's intriguing to you or if you weren't here with us, I encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast. Essentially, by way of review... What I shared was that the ecclesia was originally a select group of citizens that were called out from the rest in ancient Greece and assembled together to help govern and serve their community. So I won't take more time to unpack that right now, but then uh, I want you to notice that the very next thing that Jesus says about this group of people, right? He says, on this rock, I will build my ecclesia. Well, what rock is he talking about? What is the rock on which the ecclesia of Jesus is to be built? So we talked just a little bit about that last week as well. The ecclesia, or called out assembly of Christ followers, is built upon a firm foundation, a solid foundation of rock. And there are four different interpretations that theologians have come up with over the years. And frankly, Rather than taking sides, I think the best solution to this dilemma is to say that all of them are right. Jesus was smart enough that I think he had all four of these answers in mind at the same time, and you can interpret this, uh, his words in any one of these four ways and be perfectly accurate. So the ecclesia, or called out assembly of Christ followers, is built upon a firm foundation of rock. Well, number one, interpretation number one, that rock is Jesus himself the chief cornerstone of the church, as we're told later um, in Paul's epistles. Number two, that rock is Peter. The name, Petros, which Jesus gave to Simon, changed his name from Simon to, to Peter, or Petros in Greek, literally means rock. And so, obviously, Jesus was saying something significant to Peter and about Peter in saying, on this rock, I will build my church. He was talking about the significance of Peter as an apostle, 
as the lead apostle in the early church. And in that sense, Paul again explains later that the apostles and the prophets formed the apostolic foundation of the church. Number three, the rock is understood to be Peter's confession of faith. So in a sense, the church, the ecclesia, is built upon our confession of faith in Christ. That's the doorway into the church. That's the way in which you become a a member of the ecclesia of God, by confessing faith in Jesus Christ like Peter did. So in a sense, it's not just Jesus himself or Peter himself, but our confession of faith in Christ that makes each one of us a living stone in the hands of God. And this is, of course, what Paul is referring to when he says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. So the idea behind all that is that each one of us who confesses faith in Christ becomes a living rock in the hands of God that he uses to build his ecclesia. But there's one more interpretation, and I touched on this just briefly at the end of the message last Sunday. Let me unpack it just for a few moments. Last but not least, beyond those three possibilities, there's one other important interpretation of Jesus' words, and I first learned about this from historian and and Bible teacher Ray Vanderlaan several years ago. At the time of his interaction with the disciples in Matthew 16, Jesus was in a city known as Caesarea Philippi. And he was standing, most likely, and on purpose, at this very place pictured behind me, which is known as the Rock of the Gods. It was a place of pagan worship, a place of extreme idolatry and wickedness, extreme darkness. And in fact, the cave that's pictured right there was known in the ancient world as the gates of hell, the gates of Hades the doorway to the underworld. It was literally, geographically, the headwaters of the Jordan River where water bubbled out from under um, um, the mountain and began its trek down, uh, down Israel. But spiritually, this is a dark place. People believed that it was the gates to the underworld. And for that reason, there was all sorts of idolatrous um, worship and wickedness that took place in this location. Jesus took his disciples here on purpose. It was out of the way. It wasn't anywhere near the direction that he was heading in, but he took them there on purpose to give them this object lesson. And I think he had in mind when he said, on this rock, I will build my ecclesia and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I think he had this place in mind specifically for that proclamation, that prophetic statement about the church. So that brings us then to the end of verse 18, where I'd like you to uh, consider with me the, the, the prophetic promise that I just referenced, right? Listen to what Jesus says. On this rock, I will build my ecclesia, and the gates of Hades, or hell, will not 
prevail against it. That's a statement of victory for the church, for the ecclesia, the people of God. We will be victorious over the gates of hell, the powers of hell. And that victory is already in the hands of Jesus, but he's extending it with these words to his people, his ecclesia. Now, at first, when you hear these words, uh, they may evoke images of, of the church under attack, the church as a fortress being attacked by the hordes of hell or whatever. And quite honestly, I think that's how a lot of people feel in our, in our culture. They, we, as we think about the church and the, uh, the influence that the church used to have in our culture and the influence that it now has, which seems to be waning, uh, we often have the sense that the church is under attack. The ecclesia is under attack. And we, the people of God, obviously do not have the favored position of influence that we used to have in American society. As I said last week, many people perceive that the church is on the decline, not on the rise. But that's not the perception of Jesus himself. Jesus sees the church as victorious over the gates of hell. And I believe he's calling us, inviting us to see it the way he sees it, to align our perspective with his perspective. And check this out. This is so significant. When you understand uh, this verse, it opens up a whole new perspective on reality. Did you know that in the ancient world, the gates of a fortified city were the place of greatest weakness? the place where the city had to be defended from attackers. So really, instead of describing a church on the defensive, it's not the gates of the church that are under attack, it's the gates of hell that are under attack. Jesus is describing a church on the offensive, not on the defensive. He's describing a people, an ecclesia, called out from the world, assembled together in his presence, who are standing against the powers of hell and literally overtaking them, overthrowing them. So these words picture the church on offense, not on defense. And in that sense, they're a prophetic promise, a promise that the ecclesia of God is meant to walk in and wield the power and authority of God over the powers of darkness in this world. I don't know about you, but I think that's a pretty fresh perspective to have on the, the purpose and the power of ecclesia. So this is what God has in mind for us. He's called us to take on the gates of hell in our society, in our world, with the promise in mind that he will build his church and that his church will be victorious in the end. Uh, so I don't prefer generally to use militaristic language in describing the church, but in this sense, it's fair to say that Jesus is really describing the church as an army, attacking the gates of hell. And his statement to Peter and to the other disciples here in Matthew 16 tells us that our image and our expectations of the church need to come into alignment with Jesus' expectations because we don't often think of it this way or see it this way. We have to shift our thinking to bring it in alignment with Jesus' perspective. Church is not about entertainment. Church is not about simply being good people who meet once a week for a nice time together or some good coffee. Church is not 
some insignificant little social club that makes us feel better about ourselves. No. Church is meant to be about overcoming the powers of hell and the kingdom of darkness with the love, the grace, the light, and the life of heaven on earth. That's why we gather together. That's what we're here for. By God's design and intention, the church, the ecclesia, is meant to be rising up in power and influence, attacking and overtaking the gates of hell. Jesus, of course, won the victory for us at the cross. It's already been accomplished. But we have to live it out, right? We have to live it out day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. We have to continue to exercise Jesus' dominion over the powers of darkness and hell. So in Colossians 2, Paul describes this victory that's been won on our behalf at the cross. He says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And then here's the kicker right here. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That's the victory of God. That's the victory of Christ Jesus over the powers of hell, over every power and principality, every power of darkness. He has defeated our enemy, our adversary. But we don't always live that out, do we? We don't always walk that out day by day. So in short, Jesus' words to Peter teach us that our vision for the church is often too small. That our focus is too narrow. Because by Jesus' definition, from Jesus' perspective, the church and our own lives individually will never be what God intends for them unless we see the victory that he's won for us and we act on that, we live that out. So how do we do that? Well, here's where uh, verse 19 comes into play. And this takes us into some new territory then. What I want you to see is that the ecclesia, or the called out assembly of Christ followers, has been given, holds the keys to God's kingdom, which are binding or forbidding and loosing or permitting what God desires on earth. Now, let me uh, make a little confession to you. I've, I've always struggled with this verse because the language is archaic, right? I mean, who talks this way? Well, nobody, really. Who, who's, who talks about binding and loosing things? It seems odd to us because it's not common language in our culture anymore. And so I've often read this verse and, and just kind of struggled with what it really meant. How do, I, how do I apply this? What does it mean for me? What does this look like? Well, let me, let me help explain and unpack what Jesus meant with these words because I think it's immensely practical when you understand it. And let's start with the concept of keys because that's a part here, that's a concept that all of us understand, right? 
I, I mentioned, you know, at the beginning here, uh, as a point of reference to Dave's story about uh, what happened when he took the keys of the car into his own hands. And um, I don't know if you have this trouble in your, in your family, but um, we have some problems with keys in our family. I'm just going to tell you straight up, we have huge problems with keys. Every young teenager dreams of the day when they get to use the car keys. The problem is, once they start using them, they don't put them back where they belong, and we can never find them when we need them. Hello? <laughs> so this, this problem got so bad that uh, it's comical, really. I, my wife and I were kind of um, growing more and more desperate. What, what can we do to solve this problem? And so finally, uh, I gave in, and I bought this little thing from Myers that says, it's made out of brass, right? Um, beautiful decorative little thing with hooks on it where you can put your keys. And it says K-E-Y-S with four hooks underneath. You know, so you can't miss it, right? This is where the keys are meant to go. And um, we debated for a little while. We talked about whether we should leave it in the kitchen or where we should put it. You know, what's the best strategic location? And finally, we settled on right next to the front door. So that you walk in the house and the very first thing that you do is put the keys on the hook where they belong so that the next person who needs them can find them when they need them. All right, anybody, anybody relating to my pain here? So, keys are powerful. Keys are powerful, right? Because keys lock or unlock whether it be the house or the car or something else altogether, a filing cabinet, whatever you want. I mean, obviously, the most common use of keys, I think, in our society, in our reality, is keys to the house or keys to the car. So let's just think about those examples for a minute, the two most common uses for keys. In the case of our homes, when we lock the door to our home, it's secure. The home is secure and safe. The home is unusable and inaccessible to those who are outside of it. So think of it here in terms of the home being bound up or forbidden from use when it's locked. When the door is unlocked, the home is loosed. Use of the home is permitted. Okay, so these two terms in uh, the really Jewish legal language uh, that were used frequently at the time of Jesus and even before that, these two terms, bound and loosed, are better translated in our own modern day as forbidden and permitted. Forbidden and permitted. To bind something is to forbid it, and to loose something is to permit it. So, if you're talking about the use of keys to enter the house, if you lock the house with the keys, the use of the the house is forbidden. It's bound. And if you open it, uh, on the other hand, the the key opens the lock, the house is loosed, or the use of the house is permitted in that case. So, when you lock something up, it's safe and secure. That's binding or forbidding its use. But on the other hand, when you unlock something... Uh, that was locked, you're loosing it. You're permitting it to be used. And I offer you this explanation because, again, for many years I've been puzzled by this verse and how to apply it and what it means for us. 
So, to go back to the analogy of a father, you know, sort of trusting his teenager with the keys to the car, um, just think about that for a moment. Think about the significance of the first time a parent places the keys to their car in the hands of their teenager and says, go ahead, you get to drive today. You get to take the car wherever you need to go, right? That's an act of delegated authority. That's granting responsibility and permission to your teenager to take your vehicle somewhere, wherever they need to go. And in that sense, you're giving them the keys and you are loosing to them the use of the car. Now, with that analogy fresh in your mind, what does it mean for Jesus to say to Peter, Peter, here you go. I am giving you the keys to the kingdom of God. I'm placing them in your hands. So that you, Peter, and the ecclesia with you has responsibility to bind or to loose, to forbid or to permit. Essentially, as a father places the keys to his car in the hands of his teenage son or daughter, the Father in heaven has placed the keys to the kingdom of heaven in the hands of his ecclesia. That's what this is about. This is a big deal. This is important. According to Jesus' own words, these are the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Not just a nice car, the kingdom of heaven. So this is really an amazing reality to comprehend, to think about. I mean, process it, ponder it, digest it. What does this mean? What kind of authority have we been given? It's amazing. And hear me, Jesus was certainly giving the keys of the kingdom to Peter. Some people, some theologians, and some church traditions would say, this is just about Peter. Others would say, well, no, it's about the apostles. It's about apostolic authority. I'm going to try to prove to you this morning, actually, that that Peter and the apostles, by extension, are represented in all of us, and that Jesus was really placing the keys to the kingdom in the hands of the ecclesia, not just in the hands of Peter. So verse 19, what I'm saying is that verse 19 is linked to verse 18, not independent of it. The kingdom authority to bind and forbid or to loose and permit is given not just to Peter, but to the ecclesia as the means by which we are to overcome the gates of hell. Think about that. It's like Jesus is saying, my ecclesia, the called out community of my people, will overcome the gates of hell because I have given them the power and authority to bind and to loose what God desires. So if God has literally placed the keys to the kingdom in our hands, what are we to do with them? What is this? How does this work? How are we supposed to use those keys? What do they turn off or turn on? Well, again, notice the explanation that Jesus offers. Notice the particulars of it in verse 19. Whatever you bind in heaven, the NIV says, shall be bound on earth. 
and whatever you loose in heaven will be loosed on earth. What's interesting about these words at first glance is that there's a connection between what happens down here and what happens up there. There's a connection between what happens in heaven and what happens on earth. The authority that we've been given has an impact in both places simultaneously. But frankly, I want to share with you something that's, that's a bit challenging about this. This verse, I think, is often uh, mistranslated because it fails to capture the, the Greek tense of the verbs that Jesus used. And without getting too deep into the scholarly debates over all that, I don't want to see your eyes glaze over. Let me just uh, give you what most scholars have come to agree upon as the best translation of Jesus' original words. It's a little different than what we just read uh, from the NIV. It goes like this. Whatever you bound, bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. So it kind of changes the priority just a little bit. It changes the, the order, and it places the significance on what has been bound in heaven and what has been bound uh, or loosed in heaven, and, and then how we carry that out and act upon it down here on earth. It reminds me, frankly, and we'll come back to this in short order, it reminds me of Jesus' prayer, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Frankly, I think binding and loosing is an exercise of that prayer. It's an, act, it's an activity of, uh, that's related to that prayer. It's, it's taking what's already been done or proclaimed or desired in heaven and, and activating it down here on earth. So the point here is that uh, though the distinction may seem insignificant, if I can tease it out for you, what this means is that we are to bind or forbid and loose or permit things down here on earth in agreement with what God wants to bind or loose. God himself carries out what we speak with the authority with the authority that he's granted us because we have rightly discerned and agreed with what he's already doing. So binding or forbidding things and loosing or permitting things are a way of acting upon this prayer, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the context of our life together down here, we, the the ecclesia of God's people, are meant to forbid whatever's contrary to God's will and permit whatever's consistent with God's will. And as we do that, the kingdom of God, the rule of God, is manifested in our lives on the earth. God's reign and rule is opened up to us, which also means simultaneously that the kingdom of darkness and the gates of hell are being overcome. Wherever the rule of God is manifested, the rule of darkness is defeated. So let me give you a little illustration just to kind of make this practical and and give you a handle. Um, We do this all the time as parents in our homes, binding and loosing. We just don't think of it that way. We don't use those terms, right? But this is the responsibility, the authority of a parent in their home, in their household, in their family. So for example, uh, we have some other challenges, you know, besides keys. Uh, One of them is internet use. 
how much time is too much, what sites should be allowed or shouldn't be allowed, how do we govern that, how do we, how do we what, what are we to forbid and what are we to permit in terms of Wi-Fi use or internet use by our children? And perhaps some of you have, as parents have struggled with that same issue. So not too long ago, we, uh, we got hold of this little piece of hardware called um, Circle. It's a little box that connects with your computer and it limits access to the Wi-Fi. And so you can set time limits, you can set site limits, and, I, and you know, my kids are not big fans of this because they don't want the limits, but quite honestly, as a parent, that little device has helped me to govern the use of Wi-Fi and internet in our home by setting parameters. There are things that are allowed, permitted, loosed, and things that are forbidden or bound. That's a good thing. That's a healthy thing. That's my responsibility as a parent. If I care about my kids and what's best for them, then I have to take responsibility over what they do or don't do. They aren't free to just do whatever they want. That would be foolish. Sorry, guys. I know you're not, you know, but sorry, but not sorry, right? It's for your own best interest that I do things like this as a parent. That's an exercise of binding and loosing, permitting and forbidding. And we do this all the time. We just don't think of it in this language. In the context of our home and family life, we're constantly forbidding or permitting certain things to take place in our homes because of the authority that we have as parents to look after the best interests of our children, to care for them and protect them. And, you know, I mean, let's be honest. Sometimes kids want things that aren't necessarily best for them, right? Actually, we do as adults, too. Let's be honest about that, shall we? So, God has granted, in this case, a measure of authority to bind or to loose certain behaviors or activities in the home, and he's granted that authority to parents in the home. Well, in the same way, in the spiritual realm, we are the household of God. We are the family of God. And God has granted us, the ecclesia, power and authority and responsibility to bind and to loose certain things. What are we permitting and what are we forbidding? And in those things that we forbid or permit, we are allowing and inviting the kingdom of God to be manifested in our lives, the rule of God, because we are forbidding things or permitting things on the basis of what God says is best. So let me give you a few biblical examples just to kind of wind this down and make it as practical as I can. Let me take you to Matthew 12. This is a few chapters before our our passage in Matthew 16. Matthew 12, a fascinating example. We'll begin the reading at verse 22, and I'll just cover this quickly, but I think it's a, a practical example of what I'm describing. Then they brought Jesus, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How can his kingdom stand? 
And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if it's by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom language, through and through. Or again, Jesus says, verse 29, and here's the key point of connection with Matthew 16. How can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up, which is the same Greek word, bind, unless he first binds the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. So, Again, notice here that the same word is used by Jesus with regard to binding the strong man. In short, delivering a person from the influence of demonic spirits, as Jesus often did, involves binding or forbidding the strong man, the demonic power, from influencing that person, and loosing or permitting the person to be free from that demonic influence. So in delivering someone from demonic oppression, we are binding the enemy and loosing the person. And that's an exercise of kingdom authority that has been given to the ecclesia of God. One example of how this works. Here's another one, Matthew 18. Jesus comes around a few chapters later after this encounter in Matthew 16 and uses the same phrase, but in a different context. And it's helpful, it's insightful as we think about how to walk this out, how to live this out. Matthew 18, 15 to 20. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. If they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And again, truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Now, isn't it interesting? Probably many of us, if we've been around the church for any length of time, are familiar with Matthew 18. What do you do? How do you confront somebody that's caught in sin? What's the process that you're supposed to follow uh, to bring them to correction in the church? This is often referred to as church discipline, which is not always the most pleasant of terms, but that's the idea behind this passage that many of us are familiar with. We're also familiar with uh, the promise in verses 19 and 20. If you agree about something, whenever there are two or three people gathered together, God is there present with them, and whatever they agree upon will be done by the Father in heaven. But we, I think, often fail to consider verse 18 and how it connects with what comes before it and what comes after it. But it's all together. It's all packaged together. And these realities, these experiences are all interconnected. So in this case, how does the principle of binding and loosing in verse 18 apply to the instructions given just before it in verses 15 to 17? Jesus is saying that his ecclesia has a responsibility to bind or to loose certain behaviors among the people. 
This is about the behavior of our brothers and sisters within the church. So the church is responsible and has authority to forbid certain behaviors and to permit certain behaviors. If someone's caught in a sin or a behavior that's been forbidden, then the ecclesia of Jesus has God-given authority to confront that behavior and to reinforce the binding of that behavior. This is serious business. This is a huge responsibility. And that's one reason why we don't you know, exercise it unless we really need to. But sometimes it's really important. If the person resists the exercise of godly authority and they fail to repent and change their behavior, then the ecclesia has actually been given authority from God not only to forbid that specific behavior, but ultimately, even when necessary, to forbid their membership in the ecclesia. So let me give you a tangible example. Several years ago, I had a couple come to me and say, we'd like you to marry us. We'd like you to perform you know, our marriage ceremony. And I, and I asked them a question, a question that I have to ask every couple that wants me to marry them. Are you living together? They said yes. I said, well, okay, here are my, here are my rules. Here are my parameters for you. If you want me to perform your wedding, I'm going to ask you to stop living together until you're married. I'm going to bind you from doing that. If you'll follow my advice, if you'll do that, if you'll stop living together, separate from one another, and restore holiness and righteousness to your relationship, then I'll be happy to marry you. But if you won't, then I won't. That's how it works. And they did, thankfully. In this case, they did. They moved out um, and uh, found two different places to live until they were married. And they've stayed happily married to this day. So that's an example of binding or loosing, forbidding or permitting a certain behavior that is counterproductive to the rule of God, the kingdom of God manifesting in our life together as a community. And I'm not suggesting by this that we're supposed to get all legalistic and have a long list of rules that people are meant to follow. Um, That's not the point here. But the point is, the point is that we have been given authority to bind or to loose certain behaviors for the best interests of the community and for the sake of the kingdom, which is the rule of God over our lives. Now, on the flip side... Uh, This isn't just about binding. This isn't just about forbidding certain behaviors. It's also about permitting certain things or loosing certain things. So part of what Jesus is describing here and in other places as well is that the ecclesia has also been given authority by Jesus to forgive sins, which is loosing people from the power of guilt and shame. Think about that. Every time we proclaim forgiveness for someone who's repentant, of their sin. We are loosing them from the powers of hell. We are loosing them from guilt and shame over their sin. That's powerful. That's amazing. And we've been given authority as the ecclesia to do that, to speak those words of grace over people's lives. And that brings us then, and I want to finish here, to the very very last bit of this reference in Matthew 18 that we've just read together, this point of connection, because, again, Jesus uses the same phrase in Matthew 18 that he used in Matthew 16. So here's here's where he goes in verses 19 and 20. 
Again, truly I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Again, this is powerful stuff. This is, a, this is a, an amazing revelation of the authority that the ecclesia of God has been given. And what Jesus is saying here has to do, of course, with prayer. But I think it's connected to verse 18. What he's saying is that part of how we bind or loose happens when we agree in prayer for certain things to happen or not to happen. We have authority when we agree together in prayer according to God's will. We have authority to bind things from happening or to loose things to happen. Essentially, when we unite and agree to ask God for in prayer is a way of forbidding or permitting certain things to take place. So whenever we say, for example, God, your will be done in this situation, we are actively binding or forbidding the will of a person or of a demonic power to take precedence over the will of the Lord. And at the same time, we're actively permitting the will of God to be done in that situation. So binding and loosing are brought to bear then in how we pray together. This means that, the corporate, that corporate prayer has great power for the exercise, not only of binding and loosing, but specifically for bringing the kingdom of God to bear and defeating the kingdom of darkness. What all of this adds up to, if I can kind of summarize it for you in a single sentence, amounts to this. If we want the kingdom of light to overcome the sin and death of the kingdom of darkness, we have to use the keys that God has placed in our hands. How we experience the kingdom of God overcoming the kingdom of darkness has everything to do with the keys that God has placed in our hands. I pray that you'll use those keys with great wisdom and great authority. Let's pray.